If you are in the auditorium, could you find your seats again? That'd be grateful. I'd be grateful for that. Um, largely because, not that I want to uh, rush along too much, it's the opposite, really. I want to have a little bit of time at the end for us to really worship and respond to Jesus <clears throat> just in worship and in taking bread and wine together. We do normally do that on the first Sunday of the month, but I wanted us to do it today uh, as a special extra. I felt that was right. Actually, I do feel in God that um, God wants to really meet with us in that worship time at the end, and I hope in the Word of God as well, of course, but, but particularly... I. I I just sense that the Holy Spirit wants to move amongst us and just touch us in different ways. Um, you know, it's an interesting day for the Trinity, really. Some of us uh, probably need a fresh touch of understanding God as our Father. That's not actually what I'm going to be preaching about, particularly. But the Holy Spirit, I think, is here to move. And it may be that that's the subject that you really just need to engage with. Your loving, gracious, heavenly Father is here to meet you. But also Jesus, the Son... Jesus, our Saviour, Redeemer, where it's probably where I'll be landing a little bit in, in what we're preaching about. I want us to have fresh faith uh, in him. I want us to meet him again, as it were, face to face. Sometimes we sing that I would see you, Lord. Well, I pray in our spirits, to some degree, we can say we do that by the end of the morning. We are actually looking at the book of Job. If you're a visitor, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're looking through the book of Job, not of course verse by verse, thankfully, um, because it's a long book, but we are looking sort of fairly um, chronologically, we're working through at the battles Job has, some of you almost, if you've got any knowledge of the Bible at all, will know that he's a man who was an upright living, good man, good father, he was probably quite wealthy, was wealthy, and uh, sort of senior figure in his culture, and everything was going well for him. And then one after another, disasters hit him. One after another, where he loses all his wealth, all his kids are killed, he, his health goes, and there one or two, one, several different things happen in quick succession. And he's left with just his wife and he, and bereft and impoverished. And three of his friends visit him, and they do all right for the first few days, bringing uh, just sympathy and empathy and just sitting with him, weeping with him. And then they begin to try and help him to process it or to explain it. And you realise as their explanations go on, they get more and more edgy and aggressive with him because he won't respond to their simple, logical argument. You must have done something wrong. It's your fault, basically. Or if you repent, put it right with God, you know, just trust God a bit more, believe a bit more, it'll come right. You, there's things you can do to fix this joke with regard to your relationship with God. And it gets quite uh, feisty, really, as it goes on. Job gets quite cross with them. He says, look, you know, that's not what it's about. Now, we the, we, the reader, know that actually Job's right. That isn't fundamentally what it's about. Because we've seen at the beginning that there's been a battle in the heavenlies, really, where Satan has come to God and said, you know, God said, look at Job. He's a great guy. Follows it. Satan says, does Job follow God for nothing? And in that is the question that is just a sort of real uh, torpedo thing. It's like, surely he's only following you because you bless him. You look at him, he's wealthy, he's got everything going for him. Of course he follows you, worships you, anybody would. Take that away and we'll see whether he worships you. He won't. Satan says, you know, it's superficial. And God says, no, it's not. And God will know the end from the beginning. Satan doesn't. 
It's just not. And, and so it's, yes, it is. And basically, Satan is given freedom. It's an interesting subject we looked at earlier. Freedom to work on Job in a horrible way. So the evil comes through Satan's activity. There's no doubt about that. It's interesting, he can bring illness, he can bring storms, he can stir up evil people. But nevertheless, there is the overall sovereign, permissive will of God behind it all. It didn't have to happen, you could argue. God allowed it to happen. But things are going on on the ground which are doing stuff in Job and actually in Job's comforters as well. And we're cutting right in on that this morning. We're going to look at where are you, God, is our question we're looking at. And we're going to see how Jesus brings an answer to that. But let's first of all look at Job's dilemma. So if you could put up that first. We've just got two points, really. The first one is Job's dilemma. And although I'm not going to read much from Job 23, that's where we're focused. If you want to look at it, we will look at one or two of the bits of context. So I'm looking at Job 22, 23. Job 23, verse 3, will go up on our screen. This is Job's dilemma, if you like, and it's about his He's talking about God. If I only knew where to find him, God he means, if I, only I could go to his dwelling. Now that's Job's frustrated cry. We're going to look at the context and I think it's going to make a lot of sense to you when we do. Because we all go through battles. This is ultimately about us. It's not only about Job. We're learning from what happened to him and applying it by the Holy Spirit to us. So Job gets to this frustrated point where essentially he says, well, you know, if I only knew where to find God, if I could only get to his dwelling, I'd have some things to say to him, actually, what he goes on to say. But why does he burst out like that? Why is this? Well, you see, we're now into the third round of the controversies with his comforters. And one of his good friends, remember, Eliphaz, who actually is one of the first to show some comfort right at the beginning, has just delivered a lengthy speech to Job. And it's actually the last speech Eliphaz makes. But unlike his earlier ones, this speech is pretty direct, it's pretty blunt, and to be honest, it's quite brutal. Because what it in effect says is that, Job, this suffering must be your problem. It can't be God's problem, it's got to be your problem. And actually, Eliphaz goes on to describe the sorts of sins that could have led to the sorts of problems that Job has. He's being, and many Christians unhelpfully react like this. They think they're being helpful and they're analysing, well, there's a whole scheme of things that could lead to this. These are the sorts of sins. And of course, by implication, he's saying Job must be guilty of them. Let me give you a taster of them. Verses 5 to 11 of chapter 22. Is not your wickedness great, says Eliphaz, to Job? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary. You withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man, owning land and an honoured man, living on that land, you sent widows away empty-handed. You broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you. That's why sudden peril terrifies you. That's etc., etc. Now, actually, there is no evidence whatsoever that Job did any of those things. But Eliphaz is saying, well, look, why you're in such a mess, why it's so dark for you, you've stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary. You know, you were cruel to widows and sent them away empty-handed. 
It is very unkind. There is no evidence it's true, it's speculative, and it's wrong. Because actually that's not why Job is suffering. We know the answer. We know the answer is that Satan taunted God about Job. And God said, Job's so good, I trust. He's going to stick firm to his faith, even though he's going to go through a difficult time. So actually, God's cheering Job and saying, he's, he's my servant. And actually, it's the opposite. But Eliphaz, a perfectly decent man, a friend of Job, has got so frustrated, so bothered that he can't explain it. He's now saying, well, this is the sort of thing you've been up to. You've done this. You've been cruel to people. And as a result, this has happened. Now, he then goes on, this is Eliphaz, to give a super spiritual, in the light of what we know, sort of uh, answer. Although it's worded very beautifully. So verse 21 of 22 says, Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. So you've got, you should be, you were prosperous. Something's gone wrong. You've done something wrong. That's why you lost your prosperity. So submit to God and be at peace with him. This way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent, etc., etc., verse 26, then surely you will find delight in the Almighty and you will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows, etc. So basically, if you admit your fault, if you put it right, if you just pray to God and meet with him, that will be fine. Now, in reply, in chapter 23, Job, first of all, ignores all the charges against him, which is actually quite interesting. I think he's probably worn out and fed up with saying, look, I'm not like that. That's not why it's happening. I haven't done loads of wrong things. I haven't been cruel to the poor, etc. He doesn't even bother to say that. He's so used to their accusations. But he does respond to the advice that Eliphaz has given him about just repent Submit to God, accept his instruction, return to the Almighty, and it'll all be okay. He doesn't sort of rubbish that entirely, which is quite interesting. He doesn't say, look, that's nonsense, I don't believe in God, because that's not true. Job does believe in God. Job is still a man of faith. But he immediately reveals his fundamental problem. The problem is, how do I find God? Where is he? How can I get to him? See, Eliphaz says, just repent, seek God, pray, admit all the silly things you've done, all the most terrible things you've done. Job doesn't even, he says, look, I can't even find God at the moment. I don't know where he is. He does believe in God. He's not an unbeliever. He's not an atheist. He clings to his faith throughout the whole ordeal. This is not a sneering remark. How can I find God? It's not in that sort of tone. The whole context shows us that he actually longs to meet with God. He wants to find God. He's still got some some questions he'd like God to answer. He's not in a, 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 shall we say, a broken state, which is okay, fine. I'm not asking him to be. But he'd say, you know, I'd like to ask him. I want to state my case before him. Phil, you know, I want to know what's going on. I want to answer the answer to the question, why? Fair enough. But he doesn't find contact with God. And he puts it quite beautifully. It's in verses 8 and 9. I think they're on the screen, aren't they? Could, could you go on? Thank you. 
If I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. The whole of the book of Job is beautiful, really. Beautiful poetry, and even the original Hebrew catches a little bit of it in translation. But he, he puts it like that. He says, look, oh, I've been searching for it. I go to the east, he's not there. I go to the west, I, I can't find him. You know, he said, where is he? How do I meet with God? You, you blaming me, telling me I've got to... But I can't even find him. I'm searching. I'm looking everywhere. Ultimately, Job needs a revelation from God. Actually, we all do. We can seek him, and we should, but we're also dependent on something lifting the veil from our eyes, some opening of a door. And actually, God does turn up later in the book of Job. You'll know, and probably see it before we finish looking at the book. And, and God comes and reveals himself. Job, in a sense, doesn't find God. God finds him. And that's the same for us. There's a sense in which, yes, we should seek Yes, we should come. And we're going to do that in a funny way. This morning we're going to do it. Not in a funny way. We can do it as we worship but we, and as we come to bread and wine. But we're also looking, Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Because I need God to meet me as well as me meet God. I need revelation from him. And you know, praise God, we are in a different position from that of Job. It is a privilege to live where we live, in the post-Jesus era, what we call AD. After Jesus came, died, rose again. Everything has changed. And on this issue of meeting with God, things are different. You know, in our own effort, we can't find God. Our own puny minds will never be able to grasp him, but by human effort. You know, we got, what, 70, 80, 90 years maybe these days, you know, we're just little ants compared to the creator, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. His ways are not our ways. Everything he does is over and above anything we can conceive of. We need him to stoop down to us and reveal himself to us. And you know, he has done that. Let's move on. Jesus answers Job's heart cry. Let's zoom forward many centuries from Job. And you will find a group of men, very ordinary men, some of them fishermen, some of them have been sort of like uh, civil servants, not very nice ones actually, tax collectors, but ordinary jobs. And these men are in an upper room and there's one man in the group who's been a carpenter actually, a carpenter for many years, an ordinary working carpenter, probably for quite a bit of his life who seems to be the centre of attention of these men. A lot of people in Palestine 2,000 years ago would think he still was a carpenter, just Joseph's son, Mary's son. A bit suspect about his birth and legitimacy, but he's the local carpenter. He's a real down-to-earth man. I should say, he worked as a carpenter, which has an impact on probably your hands, and working hands. And he's a real man, and he's there amongst this other group of ordinary men. And yet they know he's very special. And they are looking at him. And they are taking notice of what he says. Now, somebody else knew he was very special and knew he'd been very special for 33 years she'd known this. 
and that was his mother. Because let's read a Christmas reading. Why stick it? Why leave it in Christmas? Because she had this experience, Luke 1, put it up on the screen for me, thanks. She had this experience around his birth. She knew what nobody else perhaps accepted, that she had never had sex with a man before she had this baby. She had an incredible experience, which is on the screen now, I'm just going to read it to you, when an angel met with her and they said this, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asks a straightforward, real question. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Absolutely clear, absolutely explicit, and thoroughly authentic account. Probably that bit in Luke is undoubtedly based on a first-hand account from Mary to Luke. Luke, the writer of that gospel, clearly got a lot of his information in certain areas from Mary. It distinctly has that feel to it. And Mary told him exactly what happened to her. He, this one, this carpenter of Nazareth, is the long foretold Messiah, the servant king, the suffering saviour. But more deeply significant, he's God manifest in the flesh. He was truly man, but his conception was from God. The Holy Spirit worked in her womb. And this amazing miracle of the incarnation took place. Now, this group of men, 33 years after this, this group of men are sitting around listening to him, and they're struggling themselves to get their head round it. So one of them says this, John 14, verse 8, please. Could you put that one up? Philip said, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Just hold that up there for a moment. This is a context where these guys have been seeing three years of Jesus. And and Philip says, in a way, it's slightly Job's question. Well, you know, we're hearing what you're saying. We hear all your teaching. There's some amazing things Jesus said. He said, but uh, we we need God here. Show show us the Father, and and that will be enough. We need to meet with God. Jesus, we're we're really a little bit phased by what you're doing. It's remarkable. It's incredible. but, But please, just take us to God. And that will be enough for us. And then Jesus gives this answer. Could you put up the next few verses? John 14, 9 to 10. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. These are incredible words. You have to deal with this if you are serious about Christianity and Jesus. You cannot put him into being a box of a Mahatma Gandhi, good man though he might have been, a good man, nice man, great example, laid down his life in a peaceful way for the good of others. This is not the same. It isn't, is it? A guy who says this, 
Is he mad? Is he bad? Or is he God? It is a question. Philip says, look, look, you're saying a lot of stuff. Look, take us to God. Show us God. And he says, don't you know me? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Look at me. That's what he's saying. And you'll know about the Father. Anyone who sees and listens to me knows what God's like. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the complete revelation of what God is like. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Meet Jesus. The search for God ends when you meet Jesus Christ. He is that wonderful conclusion to that heart search that Job has. That's where it is. And we're now here after Jesus has died and risen. Life is different for us than from Job. And, and actually, we can, through Jesus, meet God. We're going to talk about that as we move towards the bread and the wine. Jesus says it, this rather poignant really. He says, don't you know me, Philip, after I've been such a long time with you? Let's just pause for a moment. Philip had been with Jesus for all three years of Jesus' ministry. Philip is one of the very first disciples. You can read that for yourself in your Gospels. So he had seen all the miracles, water into wine, and all the feeding of the 5,000, the storm on the lake, the, the lepers healed, Lazarus raised from the dead. He'd seen all of it. He'd seen demons scream and come out when Jesus ordered them to. He had seen the compassionate acts with the the widow of Nain or with with the lepers. He'd seen the words of grace to the woman caught in adultery. He'd heard those. He'd heard the words of blistering challenge to the Pharisees and the hypocrites. He'd seen the authority in Jesus' teaching, the compassion, which could be for Zacchaeus as well, wealthy man though he was, as long as he knew he was repentant, the compassion to Nicodemus. He'd seen this incredible range, this man who could handle anybody, who could speak with grace to anybody, could challenge sin, who could stand up for the underdog and the downtrodden, but, but also had time for a, a Nicodemus. Or a, or, a, or a centurion, a Roman centurion, who would come and say, please heal my servant. And you know, wow, this man's got faith. I haven't seen such great faith in Israel. Yes, he's healed. And, and, and all of this, this is not someone just a Jewish rebel. He's not just a, a rebel leader. There's something extraordinary about this man. He'd made those statements, which you can read in John's Gospel, I am statements, we call them, where he uses God's sort of terminology about himself. Already he'd said that. And Philip is struggling with it, and Jesus gets even more explicit. We've just read it. He's saying, you meet me, you meet God. Let's look at a verse a little earlier in that chapter. Can you put up John 14, 6, which is actually the verse that may have provoked Philip's confused reaction in verse 8. Jesus answered, in, we're coming into a, a middle of a conversation, but let's just read it. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty definite, isn't it? And that really provokes Philip, like, I don't get what you're on about. I, take us to God, I need God. And, and Jesus then gets more explicit, we've read it. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. But here, what a magnificent statement. What an incredible statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is good news 
And it's sort of challenging news. It's good news to the extent that this offer is for everyone. The rest of the New Testament makes that very clear. It's not just for Jews or for the handful of followers Jesus has here. Anyone and everyone, whosoever will, may come through Jesus Christ. You can all find God. You can all find the answer to Job's cry in and through Jesus. But although it's inclusive, there's an exclusive element, which is quite challenging for many today. It is only in and through Jesus, you see. That's the exclusive bit. Anybody, whoever, only through Jesus Christ. This is not about your history, your background. If you become a Christian, whoever you are, whatever your religious background or non-religious background, including brought up in a Christian country, all of that is irrelevant. All of that has to, in a sense, go. We all start afresh in Christ. Amen? Do you see what I'm trying to say? And sometimes people say today, well, you know, are you rubbishing other religions by saying only Jesus? No, no. This rubbishes all religion. This, if you want to use that horrible word, this rubbishes all everything because nothing will get you to God. Even being a good Englishman and going to church occasionally, nothing will get you to God but Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the way. And that is available for all. For all. And it is a wonderful, wonderful offer. Look at another one. We haven't got too many, but I do want to look at this one. Matthew 11. Can you put it up? This is something Jesus also said. All things have been committed to me by my Father. So God has committed to Jesus this huge task of bringing redemption and hope to mankind. No one knows the Son except the Father. Look at that. No one knows the Father except the Son. He's talking about himself. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, he will choose to reveal himself to you if you ask him. If you come, I'm sure you'll find you're chosen. Don't, don't get your head in a tangle around that. But Jesus is basically repeating the fact that he is the only way to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, that would be the answer to poor old Job. But he lived 2,000 years maybe earlier than this. We live 2,000 years after it. We do not need to stay in Job's dilemma. We all know Job's dilemma. We all know it, including some of us as Christians. We can get to a place where we think, I don't know where God is. How do I find God? I tell you, Christian friend, you need to get back to Jesus. And I don't mean that in an Eliphaz way. I'm not bossing you about. I'm saying you're not going to find the answer outside of Jesus. You know that, and I know that. You need a fresh meeting with Jesus because then you will know God. That's how God has determined it to be. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the way to God. He's opened up through his death and resurrection, which we're going to remember in a moment, a new and living way into the Father's presence. So when you want to come to God, you've got to go down the great, big, wonderful way Jesus has opened up haven't you? You've got to say, Jesus, I want to thank you for opening the door to heaven. Father, I can call you Father because Jesus said I could. My God and your God, my Father and your Father. He said it after the resurrection. We can come and call him Father, Abba Father, because of what Jesus has done. You will find rest for your souls, he promises, if you come to me. You're looking for God? Come to Jesus. 
You want rest for your soul? Come to Jesus. Now, I believe Job was a sincere seeker. I've said that. He wasn't a cynic, wasn't an atheist. And I think there's many, many today, this is a very common position, I think. I don't think everybody's chucked God out. They're just not sure. They're seeking God. There's too much confusion about religion. And there's so much hype and spin. And multiculturalism has its values, but it confuses you. You think, well, which one's right? Where does it all work? And so actually, I want to cut through all that this morning and say, you can find God through Jesus Christ. Are you prepared to come to him? If you're weary and burdened and let him give you rest, let him open the door to a loving heavenly father. Jesus was unique in his life and his birth, as we see in the incarnation. His death was a real death, but it was a unique death. It bore our sins and our sorrows in his body on the cross. And it was followed by a very unusual, unique event, the resurrection. He physically physically rose from the dead. The the, the tomb is empty and it's still empty. You will not find the bones of Jesus anywhere. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then having done that, he poured out the Holy Spirit in a way that was not possible until he'd broken the way through. And so Pentecost is important. The Holy Spirit comes for us to actually engage in this truth. I don't even know what words to use almost. But the Holy Spirit is here this morning, right here. He is part of God. He is God, a person of God. He's the Spirit of Christ. He's called called that in the Bible. He's the Spirit of Jesus. He's, He's God here with us by his Spirit. And he makes Jesus real to us now. And that is possible because of what Jesus has done. Let's put up one more. Now, this is right different. This is 2 Corinthians 3. This is taking us on to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite the band up in a moment so they can just get ready. This is, listen, read it. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Let's stop on that first sentence. If you turn to Jesus, sincerely say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I believe the veil will be taken away. The Holy Spirit will come in and lift something off your eyes. You've got to turn to the Lord. But when you do, he's quick to turn to you. The Holy Spirit will lift something off your eyes. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now, I could get into this because it's wonderful Trinitarian stuff here. Capital L, Lord. We're talking about God. We're talking about the Lord God. He is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Holy Spirit with us is God with us. And we all who with unveiled face contemplate the Lord's glory. It's a bit poetic, but it's sort of lovely. Just, let, just get the feel of it. Don't get, don't get too, you know, try to get a dictionary out. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As best I understand it, what he's saying is when you turn to the Lord, the veil's lifted away, you engage, the Holy Spirit comes to you. He comes into you and he begins to change you from the inside out. That's what Christianity does. It's not about you tidying yourself up, getting yourself right, like Eliphaz said to Job, you know, sort yourself out, repent, stop doing bad things. It's not really that. It's you turn to the Lord, the veil's taken away, the Holy Spirit comes in, you are born again of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit stays in you and transforms you from one degree of glory to another, bringing you freedom and hope 
changing you from the inside out. And through the Holy Spirit, you can commune with God. You can know him as your Abba Father. You can speak mysteries to him. You can enjoy talking to him, just like to a dad. You can sing. You can worship. You can speak with utter, utter freedom. You come to the Lord Almighty, the God Almighty, and you have freedom. Isn't that glorious? Come on, band. Come up, please. Come up here. We're going to worship. We're going to thank God for the Holy Spirit. And in the next 15 minutes, we're going to move on and break bread at some point. And when we take bread and wine, we're going to just say, Jesus, I love you. I want to know you more. You need to know God. You want to know God? Come to me, says Jesus. Come to Jesus. You've been a Christian. I've been a Christian. How long have I been a Christian? Over 50 years, I think. I just want to meet Jesus fresh. Jesus, I need you. Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Lord, you know I get a dull of hearing, dull of sight. Let, let the light of God's presence come in. I want to meet with Jesus afresh this morning. I want Holy Spirit. I want this, the imminence of this this morning. This, we're talking about now. The Spirit of the Lord's with us. We're not just with an intellectual lecture on it. We want to meet with him, don't we? Let's stand together and worship. Let's see how God speaks. Be open to God speaking to you.